Welcome to another episode of the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. Uh, today, I have a special guest. I know I always say I've got a special guest, but this one is really an important fellow to me because he's probably the best buddy I've got, and uh, his name is Ernie Plock. And as you might have noticed, we share the last name, and he's a brother of mine, not only in terms of... Uh, family but also in terms of tennis as we hit quite a few tennis balls in our day. Ernie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gary. It's uh, good to be on the air with you. You know, Ernie and I started playing tennis a long time ago. I've played for 58 years, so I'm sure that Ernie probably has played around the same amount of time. But uh, Ernie went on and had a successful career in government in Washington after receiving a uh, political science degree and undergrad at Bellarmine College in Louisville, a Division II school that's quite popular in those ranks now because they've won a basketball national championship. And small Catholic school in uh, Louisville, and Ernie was the top player there after competing in high school and, and went on and has written several screenplays. He's written several books. Uh, he has a poetry book that he's co-authored to his name and two books on Germany and they're in a relationship with the United States and various other th items. But uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about tennis and uh, Ernie's done quite a bit of reading. One of the things I really admire about him is his intelligence and the fact that he's a a vast, voluminous uh, fountain of knowledge in so many different subjects, but uh, not a whole lot of people can relate to me when I start talking about the way that I teach people in tennis these days and have for a while is one of the same reasons that I studied a book and, and learned from a master that was from way back in the 20s that we're going to talk about, but William Tilden, who took a year off because he was only number two in the country to little Bill Johnson, uh, uh, worked on his game, came back and won about seven U.S. nationals after that, which is the equivalent to the, is the U.S. Open, just different name at Forest Hills and number one player in the world. And so anyway, uh, uh, Bill Tilden used to say in his book, right, that, that uh, is the thing that I teach, is that you've got you, You've got your opponent, and then you've got a third party that is an independent party that's called the tennis ball. And the tennis ball will obey you if you tell it what to do. And what he meant by that, and he went on to further explain, that if you hit the outside of the ball, it goes left. And you tell it you want to go sharp angle cross court, you hit the outside of the ball. You want to hit an inside-out forehand down the line with a little angle on it, you hit the inside of the ball. If you want to get it down, you hit over the top, and if you want to hit a slice, you hit the bottom of the ball. So it was really a simple concept, but one that I really took to, and, and I notice even with the top players that uh, I might coach in juniors, you know, the same thing applies, and you see market improvement when they really adhere to that philosophy and understand it. Um, Ernie, tell me what you know about Bill Tilden. Well, uh, you know, he is simply an extraordinary story, and I guess for me, it's no accident that he 
achieve such fame in the same decade that Babe Ruth did because the both of them were larger than life uh, figures whose uh, renown went so far beyond the game. And of course, both of them also revolutionized the game when you think about it. You know, um, that's really interesting. I'll just interject here that among the, in the 20s, Babe Ruth and Bill Tilden, as hard as it is to believe, because tennis was a huge spectator sport, which it really isn't now if you, you know, take away the majors and things like that where people are playing tournaments in different cities. There's, it's not like it was where there were thousands of people coming out to watch a tennis match like there were in that day. But uh, he was as big as, you know, almost as big as Babe Ruth in name, supposedly. Sure. And uh, so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, I think you, you could say that if you look at Tilden and Ruth, maybe one of the differences is that um, with the possible exception of Babe Ruth's, you know, calling his shot, <laughs> and pointing to center field, and then, as the legend goes, he hit the homer right where he pointed. I, I don't think you think of Ruth as, as having nearly the same degree of theatricality that Tilden did. Well, tell um, us about Tilden growing up. Um, yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm relying a little bit on that, that book, uh, Magnificent Splendor, which I know you've also read, too. A Terrible Mary. Splendor, right? A terrible Splendor. Uh -huh. Yeah, I better get my adjectives right here. Uh, but um, the book about that focuses on the famous um, Davis Cup match between uh, Gottfried von Kram and, um, and, of course, Don Budge, uh, and was in 1937, I believe, just prior to the World War II breaking out exactly in Germany. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, I was going to say that, that Tilden, uh, his three, theatricality uh, extended to things like, you know, he's going to win a match, that he's in the last game, and it's his serve. Uh, and I know you've mentioned this before too, Gary. He would uh, play to the crowd by picking up four balls and then simply walking up and four serves, four aces. And then, of course, <laughs> the crowd breaks into applause and, and he bows. Um, he did a lot of other things like that. For example, um, deliberately falling behind, you know, say 5-1 in the final set, and then coming back in a rousing crescendo six games in a row. Uh, now... Uh, maybe I could point out, too, that you, you also read about uh, some other great players. Uh, Fred Perry comes to mind, uh, but also Bobby Riggs. Get ahead of them and then come back. Although I don't know if, if Perry or or Riggs did it with the same kind of theatrical passion that, that Tilden did. Well, you talk about theatrics, and for the people who don't know who William Tilden was, William Tilden came up in uh, fairly poor in, in, in Germantown, suburb of Philadelphia, and later, when he was a great player, he also put on some, he wanted to be an actor, and he was in some shows, and he backed some shows that all went bankrupt, apparently, 
so he had, I don't know if it's because he was a narcissist, uh, had to be at, at some point, but uh, he was quite an interesting character and, you know, uh, later years was uh, taught tennis when he was shamed at uh, Charlie Chaplin's court out there in California. Right. And, you know, um, when you when you look at him, I mean, uh, there's certain individuals, you know, Gary, you just look at their life and they have some dramatic moment of epiphany where they're determined to do something. And it's almost like they grab, you know, destiny by the hand. I mean, uh, I, I was just thinking, for example, of the singer Johnny Cash. This has taken us away from the court a bit, I realize. But uh, he went down to Mexico and to buy some pills, was caught at the border, and then he spent this, these agonizing hours walking in the forest, deciding that he just had to turn his life around in the right direction. And uh, after that, he was even more stellar. But, but I think of Tilden, uh, when he was 20 or 21, uh, in his home in Pennsylvania, where he simply decided he wanted to be the best tennis player in the world. And uh, he took a year off, apparently didn't play any tournaments, uh, did a lot of reading, did constant practice. Uh, I believe one of the things that he did was he, he turned his backhand, which was more of a defensive shot, into uh, a shot where he'd drive the ball. That's right. Uh, That's that how he would try. Difference. That's right, because this yeah. little Bill Johnson had a semi-Western forehand, and he would attack Tilden's backhand, apparently. And uh, that's why he vowed. And, and I remember him talking about how he hit just R's and R's indoor on a uh, wall, you know, which I really promote a lot in my teaching. But uh, he, uh, he was quite an interesting character. And then how did he matriculate to become the German Davis Cup coach, being an American hero? Well, um I'd say, Gary, it's a combination of things, but I think first you have to start with uh, the mutual alienation between him and the USLTA back in the 20s. Um, I think that part of it goes to the, the Lawn Tennis Association's frustration that they had to keep, you know, Tilden's lifestyle, you know, as a gay man, uh, quiet. Uh, from public view, um, and uh, that, of course, Tilden, you know, like a, a later player, <laughs> knew how far he could go with his hijinks, and he could really get the blades throws with umpires and, you know, occasionally the other player, but he knew what a draw he was, you know, and he, and he knew he could go about disciplinary action by the, the USLTA, U.S. Lawn Tennis Association, uh, for those of you who don't know. Um, but I think even more so, according to, to the research I've done, was uh, his penchant for writing and writing articles, uh, some of which he was paid for. That's right. Well, he wrote for the American Lawn Tennis. I think you're breaking up a little bit, Ernie, but uh, oh, sorry. He, he, he wrote a lot of articles in a monthly magazine called American Lawn Tennis, but I know you're talking about writing plays, which he did, and, and, and of course he published many books, Match Play and The Spin of the Ball being one of the, the big books of its day and later. 
so yeah, he was a, an interesting guy, and then you know went down to pedophilia. Basically, is where he he got uh, thrown in jail for, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. Um, and actually, if you if you kind of walk through Tilden's life, the pedophilia started emerging when his game was. And he was a little bit past his peak, actually. Oh, I see. Uh, he won all of those U.S. championships. He won Wimbledon, too, until there was really no point of him going over there again. You know, the, the travel there wasn't as easy and, and didn't come as readily as it does now. But, uh, yeah, and that's... Uh, I'm a little bit sketchy on that, but Tilden's lifestyle, certainly in the 30s, extended to... Uh, hitting the the risque bars in Germany, particularly in Berlin, with his friend Gottfried von Kram, uh, the great player. Um, who, who also I, happened I don't think to be. There's evidence they had a relationship. Uh-huh. By the way, am I am I breaking up? Or no, you're am good. I going through better now. You're good now. Okay. Yeah. But uh, there was uh, there were a number of clubs before the Nazis came to power in 1933 and closed him down that um, both Von Kram and Tilden liked to uh, frequent. Um, and uh, that was also a point of contention between Von Kram and the Nazis, uh, even though Hitler knew very well that some of the officers serving under him were also gay, but he was trying to promote the superior masculine German virtues and so uh, von Kram had a very uneasy existence with hitler he was basically anti-nazi of course and uh and a german that we might von tell Kram was a member of the nobility who mm. at least in private looked down their noses at uh, hitler this vulgar rural catholic from austria who didn't have the grace and the manners and the dignity that they had as the ruling class so oh, I, see. I don't know I'm, I'm getting a little bit carried away from maybe the original subject but uh, there, there are many aspects to Tilden's life that kind of lead you onto these new pastures well, now, too well we don't have a, you know our subject goes and 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 goes off in different uh, directions but you mentioned Gottfried von Krom, who was number two in the world. He was a German. He was uh, coming up in the 30s, you know, right around the time Hitler was having his flying clubs. And, and kind of, uh, he kind of wasn't on the Hitler bandwagon, I guess. And uh, later maybe had to serve a little time in jail, but uh, was spared because he was a, a national hero, a tennis player, one of the, you know, number two in the world and from Germany. You know, promoted that Aryan superiority, but uh, right. it was he wasn't just uh, right there in lockstep with Hitler as far as the, I guess, promotion of the propaganda. That's true, and uh, let me also throw in another uh, side to this: uh, the von Kram and, and Hitler issue. Um, Daniel Prane was a Jewish tennis player, and actually the second best player in Germany behind von Kram by the 1930s. Uh, and so Prane and von Kram played, you know, from the nucleus of the German Davis Cup team. 
Well, you can imagine how this played with the Nazis when they took power in, in January of 33. Uh, Praying was eventually, you know, booted off the team because of his Jewish background. And von Krom throughout the 30s was making a number of comments in public critical of the decision to remove Praying from the team. And of course, that didn't sit well at all with Goering and Himmler and Hitler, who were trying to enshrine this notion of German racial superiority and that the Jews were the parasite infecting Germany, that Germany had to be rid of. Um, and, and But my point is there was another source of conflict between Krom and the, the Nazi government. And that's um, interesting. And that's interesting because Preen actually, you know, he beat Bunny Austin and Fred Perry for one of Germany's uh, greatest victories over England. So, you know, this guy was no Johnny-come-lately. He was a established great player, not just the second best, that he was second best in Germany, but, uh, Uh you know, that he was, and he was only Jewish by blood, uh, not a non, not a practicing Jew either, but I guess that didn't matter, did it, Ernie? Uh, well, no. I think uh, according to the the Nazi racial liturgy, the uh, the Jewish trait was passed on through the mother. So if you had a a non-Jewish father and a German mother, you were considered Jewish all the way. With the reverse, you were still considered Jewish, but um, not a, with a strong a, a, a Jewish emphasis in the eyes of, of the Nazis. Well, it's interesting how tennis is kind of its own community and brotherhood because, um, you know, when it talks in the book about Pran, it talks about him being Jewish by blood only, non-religious, non-practicing, and in fact his wife Charlotte was Christian. But this mattered little to the new regime. Dr. Theodore Leewald, the popular head of the German Olympic Committee, was forced to resign due to the fact that his father had been born Jewish and was been baptized 110 days earlier. So uh, the, the prominent Jewish members of the Rot Weiss Club, which was the big club in Berlin, were fast disappearing, and it was uncomfortable for Pren even to appear at his beloved club when King Gustav of Sweden, who was a real tennis player, this guy, visited Berlin. He made a point of playing public uh, doubles match with him, but the jester helped little, nor did a letter from Bunny Austin and Fred Perry, Pren's victims at the Davis Cup triumph the previous year. So um, that's interesting that... uh, uh, tennis was involved at the time that all of this uh, craziness was going on in Germany leading up to the World War. It sure does. And, you know, uh, when you think about it, when you think about what, well, not just a great champion Tilden was, but what a proud man that he was, and you know, with his behavior, <laughs> certainly on the narcissistic side too, but you think about the reasons why Tilden would go and coach the German team against his native country. Um, uh, it was certainly an affront to Tilden that he wasn't chosen to coach the uh, American Davis Cup team. I remember that was right, a, a right. factor. And um, I'm sure Tilden took it very personally, and that passed away in heavily as a factor in his uh, 
you know, not just his friendship with von Kram uh, in his decision to coach the German team. So you had this Davis Cup match in Berlin, and it's huge because it's packed, and Hitler's there, or actually Hitler, I guess there's a story that he may have phoned von Krom in the locker room before the match, um, but with Don Budge, and um, it was so it was it was really kind of a, a world event at the time. And uh, do you remember the result of the match? Um. Yes, the, the famous uh, Budge von Krom match. Uh, it went to the fifth set, and uh, Budge was able to win 8-6. Now, if I remember correctly, uh, in that set, my memory's a little bit hazy there, um, von Krom was up either 4-2 or 4-1, and Budge came back. And uh, it was, it's just exciting reading about that, that match, Gary, in that book, uh, A Terrible Splendor, in that um, basically shots were missed or made by half inches. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like reading that account that, that every winner, you know, either hit, you know, one-eighth inch or was out by, you know, a quarter of an inch. Uh, you had two guys who were just so so precise and uh now if if i can do one thing that it, it's the best thing in the world to be able to do and that's correct your brother <laughs> um that match was actually played at wimbledon is that um, right and it, it seems odd that it would be played there rather than in germany or the united states but back then the way the challenge rounds were structured you know the hemispheric ones uh, they would very often play in a third country. And, uh, of course, you had a, a large British audience there, and they were actually in favor of, uh, of von Krom for the most part. I mean, they, they engaged in polite applause, of course, for, for Budge as well. But there was, at that time in the late 30s, a certain affinity that the British upper crust had for Germans. It probably and, um, not for the Americans for obvious reasons as well. Well, that's right. We've got that colonial and then post-colonial uh, chips on the shoulder, you know. But um, they were. Oh, but there was another reason they were pulling for the Germans, and that the English were going to face the winner, and they believed they would have a, an easier time with the German team than with Budge and the the rest of the Americans. I guess maybe. Gene Mako was playing with Budge and Doubles. I can't uh -huh. remember. Gene Mako, yeah. Gene Mako, yeah. Uh, they yeah. figured it would be much harder to beat the Americans than, than the Germans, even though Von Kram was standout player. Uh -huh. uh, but that was the way it, it went. Well, that's interesting. And uh, so basically, Tilden played a long time though talk a little bit about the barnstorming and tell the people what the barnstorming tours were well um the the pro the pro uh, matches and and you're quite right they were known as barnstorming tours i i remember a little bit more about the way it was going in the 40s once kramer and riggs were the marquee players than earlier than that but um, you had 
you had some great players like Ellsworth Vines and Fred Perry uh, turning pro in the 1930s. And um, I remember it really started, it, Tilden would still play, and he, he played up until he was in his late 40s. He was still an incredible draw. Uh, he would put people in the seats because uh, even if his game declined, but not as much as you might think, he, there was the theatrical aspect to him. People just, you know, it was the Babe Ruth effect. It's, it's actually like the John McEnroe effect because he still draws more people when he comes and plays than the people in the main draw of the pro tournament do. It's amazing. But uh, so... Yeah, he was he was out in the forefront as far as that goes. Well, to I'd let like the people interject, Gary, um, and that was something you witnessed personally uh, in your own matches with McEnroe, right? Well, it is. But getting back to the barnstorming to tell the people about what it was, it was actually like two players going around the country and setting up canvas courts on indoor armories, basketball f- floors, just this very grueling schedule that some Definitely. that a promoter would put together, which was later Jack Kramer, as Ernie's talking about, but even prior to that, uh, uh Bill Tilden would go around, Bruce Barnes, and some other people that uh, of the earlier ilk. But when it got going in the 40s and 50s, and Riggs and Kramer were involved, uh, Pancho Gonzalez and uh, Lou Hode and would play these matches because they were professionals. And it was it, people may not realize that professional tennis and amateur tennis were two different things, and professionals were viewed as people that just went away to try to make money because it was an under-the-table amateur sport where you're not supposed to make money, which is ridiculous, of course. And, uh, you know, so that is the reason that you don't see a lot of titles at Wimbledon and U.S. Open for Pancho Gonzalez, for example, or, you know, uh, other people that were uh, not able to play in that Lou Hogue, for example, who weren't even able to play. But they would travel around in cars and roll that stuff out and play a match every night, wouldn't they, Ernie? That's that's correct, Gary. I, I recall, though, that it, the, in the years that Kramer was at the top of the tour and Riggs was a very close second, uh, people today don't realize what a great player Riggs was. Uh, and he wasn't just what we used to call a pusher, you know, who just hit the ball back. He would basically attack um, three of the four serves. He, he'd attack Ned on his first serve, his second serve, always on his opponent's second serve, and the first serve was about the only one he would stay back on. I'm, I'm digressing a little. No, no, that's good stuff because you're right. I mean, a lot of people, because Bobby Riggs also had a great deal of touch and could lob and drop shot and really had all the shots and, you know, won the singles, doubles, and mixed doubles, I guess, at Wimbledon all three events right. in 1950 or so. But uh, I didn't really realize how much of an attacker he was. And we're going to have on here uh, later in the week his coach from the uh, famous uh, Battle of the Sexes match, uh, Lorne Cool, who also worked with Jimmy Connors when Jimmy was very young and but was good best friends with Bobby and his coach and actually put together a lot of the, the helped put together the movie. Uh, but, you, but you're right, Bobby Riggs was a special kind of player, wasn't he? Yeah, he 
was. And, um, you know, of course, uh, he's, he's colorful because of all of the, uh, you know, the gambling he'd do, you know, egging people on to play him. And he would play them with, you know, furniture on his side of the court or the rule was Riggs would have to hold a large dog while playing and, you know, couldn't let go. Uh, but uh, it's interesting to me that Riggs won the very last Wimbledon uh, right months before the war broke out when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. Uh, it, it all, I think that would would be sort of a, a real dramatic event, you know, to, to win that title and then war is looming right on the horizon and then for the next six years there's no Wimbledon. Uh, and it must have been special for Riggs to do that. Yeah, that'd be interesting to talk about. I remember his son, Larry Riggs, was the coach at Pepperdine when we played Pepperdine out there okay. and met him several years later and uh, also friends with this Lorne Kuhl and Spencer Segura, uh, Poncho Segura's son. They hang out out there in San Diego. But uh, it'd be interesting to know some of those stories that he may or may not have related to his sons about those wow. days. Absolutely. What about Jack Kramer, uh, Ernie? Um, well, who, is, who was Jack Kramer? Well, Jack Kramer was, um, he was the son of a, a railroad flagman, I believe he was. Or, I'm sorry, a railroad switchman, you know, who switched off the trains off the track and um in california uh yeah originally i think um i think san bernardino is kramer's hometown uh later on his family moved to las vegas and that of course is very important because kramer you know hanging around the the gambling casinos there uh, i think he he worked there at least for some time uh, it, it's sort of like he just soaked that up and developed his ideas for tennis. Uh, you play the odds. Um, let's say if you're playing a, a best of three set match, you've got to win at least 12 games, right? right. But Kramer, Kramer stressed that it was important to know which 12 games to try to win. You don't try to win every game, uh, which is a rule that I completely violated when I played because I tried to go all out to win every point. But um, Kramer's theory was that if you, uh, if you hold serve, you can't be beaten. And so therefore what you want to do is he put a premium on conserving your energy to hold serve when your opponent is serving um if your opponent is up you know 40 love you you certainly don't make much of an effort to win another point uh and and he said even when your opponent is down 40 love on his serve you don't necessarily go all out because uh kramer claimed that back then um a player who went down love 40 on his serve and I have to think that Kramer's talking about players of his caliber, not, you know, duffers. But uh, a player down love 40 on his serve still won his serve over 50% of the time. 
Well, you know, um, you got to think uh, about you got to think about the course. When Kramer was playing, there was a lot of concrete and asphalt play, canvas play, where the serve was such a big part of the game. That a lot of time, if you got a first serve yes. in, there were a lot of missed returns, unlike what there are today. Uh, there may be sixty percent first serves not returned, where today it's ten percent that aren't returned. So that may have had something to do with it, but I'm speculating. No, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. And um, in fact, uh, you, you know how it goes too. Let's say you're playing in a tournament and uh, you're down five love, um, and your opponent is is serving. You know. Uh, a player is not going to try too obviously to tank the game, right? Or maybe some players will be very obvious about it. Um, but there was a guy named uh, Bob Falkenberg who was a contemporary of Kramer's. Big server, big to, server. Yeah, exactly. Big serve, uh, though we think of Kramer as the person who introduce the the serve and volley game but i understand uh gary wasn't there a player back around 1919 yeah maurice maurice mclaughlin the california comet he's kind of credited with the uh, serve and volley game but kramer kramer was a big server no doubt about it and that's how he won right and um kramer claimed getting back to bobby riggs that the primary reason he developed the serve and volley game was it was the only way he could beat Riggs. Really? Um, yeah, because, as I say, um, Riggs was always attacking, and um, Riggs had a, a pretty hellacious um, topspin second serve, I understand, uh, that was very hard to attack, whereas Kramer, so that Riggs wouldn't attack his second serve, which he was very good at, um, Kramer developed a top spin, uh, you know, boomer of his own to keep Riggs from from going in. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, that well, that was probably a twist serve and with depth is probably what it was to keep him from being able to hit that return from between the baseline and the service line, I right. guess. Pinned it back because Kramer was a lot taller than Riggs. Well, he got hammered in this Battle of the Sexes movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Ernie, but they made Kramer look like the biggest racist and chauvinist pig in the business. I don't know if he was or wasn't, but uh, that's the way it was portrayed. Not to, not to get off the subject, but the other thing that was funny about that movie, which I enjoyed watching, Steve Carell did a great uh, job uh, impersonating oh, really? him. You know, I, I missed that. I'll have to rent it out or stream it. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. sound like a real old fogey, but I, I still rent out discs, believe it or not. Well, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people, uh, they just know Bobby Riggs from that match when he was 55 playing Billy Jean. Sure. Billy Jean was much younger, but, um, you know, Steve Carell's got a pair of black glasses and looks just like Riggs in this uh situation which is probably kudos to Lorne Cool because he did a lot of the you know information for that movie but um, but that's interesting Kramer uh, Jack Kramer was a national champion himself now a lot of people might know him uh, from all the Jack Kramer tennis rackets that Wilson produced that he told me I think I, I, I worked with him at Wilson uh, when he was on a promotional 
uh, tournament at the national 55 and over uh, seniors that uh, actually Jackie Cooper and Kelly Hall won. I was working with him and I asked him, I said, what was the greatest shot you ever saw in the game that you ever played against? And uh, he said, oh, there's no doubt about it. It was Pancho Segura's two-handed forehand because he could do everything off of it. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah. What, what do you know about Pancho? Um, well, uh, what I know about Pancho, uh, again, it's, it's sort of similar to the situation with Riggs. I, I know about by way of uh, Kramer's book, My Life and the Game, which I would have to say, that's if I want to find out anything about tennis, I would reach for that book because uh, nobody knew the game better. But yes, uh Segura is, it was just the most devastating ground stroke in the game. And, uh, and here it's coming from this rickety Ecuadorian kid, skinny Ecuadorian kid that, that had rickets. Um, but apparently what would happen, at least with Kramer, is that, uh, you know, you take a pounding from Segura, but eventually if the match was lengthy, uh, Segura would tire from running around his backhand. Oh, I see. And that that was the way he was he was beaten. I see. I see. Well, Ernie, it's, it's been great catching up with you, uh, brother. I'll be Absolutely. talking. I'll be talking to you again. We'll do it again. We'll talk about some other old tennis players that uh, just a few people might care about, other than you and me. But. Uh, uh, Great hearing from you again, and let's uh, do oh, it again. It's a pleasure to be uh, you know, doing the show with you, Gary. Yeah. Let's do it again.